The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 1st, 2019. On this week's show, writer Caitlin Murray will join us to discuss the U.S. women's national team's big World Cup win over France and how Megan Rapino has become a hero and a lightning rod. The New Yorker's Vincent Cunningham will also be here to talk about the first day of NBA free agency in which Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving moved to Brooklyn and players agreed to more than $3 billion in contracts. Way to go, players. Finally, the Guardian's Nick Miller will be here to provide a British perspective on the two-game series in London between the Boston Red Sox and New York Yankees, American baseball teams. Joining me now from Lyon, France, where he's conducting reconnaissance on England before Tuesday's World Cup semifinal between the Lionesses and the United States of America, it's Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. Maybe we'll get to the dumb controversy about Americans allegedly spying on Brits in their hotels. Should we save that for the segment, Stefan? Oh, yeah. It's supremely dumb and very silly season, dead time before a big game. So, yes, let's save that and discuss it. Okay. Agreed. Done. Let's move on. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On Friday in Paris, the U.S. women's national team beat France, its main rival for the 2019 World Cup title. Megan Rapinoe scored both goals for the U.S. in its 2-1 quarterfinal win. Joining us now from Lyon to talk about the game and the team is Caitlin Murray, who's been writing about the World Cup for The Guardian, who's the author also of the book The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer. Welcome, Caitlin. Sure. Thanks for having me. So you were at the game on Friday, as was Stefan. Let's start with the atmosphere, uh, Caitlin. What was it like in uh, the stadium and kind of how can you contextualize it um, for folks who were not at the game and were just watching on television? Yeah, I mean, it was crazy. I think Alyssa Nair today said that it was the most intense atmosphere she's ever been in. Jill Ellis said the same thing, which coming from Jill Ellis is saying a lot because she coached in a World Cup final four years ago. Um, It was crazy. I mean, France and the U.S. have had the best support throughout this World Cup, the largest crowds and the most uh, enthusiastic crowds, I would say. So to have those two fan bases in the audience there, um, it just really created a special atmosphere. And I think, you know, Stefan might be able to 
offer a different perspective, but I think the moment that I sort of got chills and realized how big this game was, was during the national anthems when all the French people in the stands started singing their national anthem and it just filled the stadium. And um, that was a really special moment. And it just kind of got bigger from there. Oh, it was the, when they sang the Marseillaise, look, that's a great war-like anthem. And (laughs) the French people are totally into it. And yes, that absolutely set the tone. I mean, I think the stands were about three to one French fans to U.S. fans. Um, mm-hmm. But the French, you know, they've got the, they've got the Marseillaise. They also have Alele Bleu, which is such a great chant, which they do constantly during the game. FIFA left flags on everyone's seats. Alas, my daughter and I got French ones, which we just <laughs> stuck under the seats. And it was loud organically. You know, FIFA hired those DJ goofballs to scream into microphones before the game to get the crowd pumped up. But it was really loud because the game was physical. It was fast-paced. It was filled with tension and excitement from the beginning to the end. It was really just one of those games where you feel insanely anxious and exhilarated throughout. I was sitting next to a young French dude who spoke good English, and we oohed and odd in the international language of sport the entire game, grabbing each other after every near miss, gently consoling each other's goals. I think we each felt sorry for each other. Um, My daughter took a photo of us afterward, which I will cherish. He admitted after the game that it was a great match. U.S. deserved to win. But I'm sure when he saw the coverage in L'Equipe and the rest of French media the next day, claiming that France was jobbed because U.S. defender Kelly O'Hara committed a handball in the box late in the match, which he didn't. He probably changed his mind. (laughs) It's been interesting to see how that handball has become such a talking point for everyone but the American media and American fans. (laughs) We've just sort of all forgotten about that. I wrote about Uh, it, Caitlin. It's a talking point for me. (laughs) Well, I mean... Her arm, you know, we don't have to relitigate it. Her arm was in like a relatively natural position. And Tobin Heath on her goal, where it would have made the game three to zero, it was weighed offside. Crystal Dunn was declared to be offside. I don't think that there was actually an offside on that goal. I think it should have been three to zero. So there are always these moments that we can talk about. And I would much rather we're debating missed calls by referees than just really disruptive and annoying VAR decisions, which is what the rest of this World Cup has looked like. So, you know, I'm okay with the O'Hara handball discussion and whether, you know, Tobin Heath's goal should have counted or not, because at least VAR wasn't intervening and sort of disrupting the momentum of a game that was really fun. I remember at the 80th minute, looking at the clock, saying, oh my God, it's already the 80th minute. This has just flown by. It's been so much fun. And VAR probably, you know, would have ruined that. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was a blessing that VAR did not get involved. But the issue is that I think it's fair to frame both of those decisions as another just kind of iteration of incompetence in the refereeing this tournament because by all rights, VAR should have gotten involved because they were close and contested calls. There should have been stoppages and those should have been evaluated. There have been moments in the tournament when VAR stopped play and the calls weren't particularly close or contested and it seemed pointless. But, you know, as players especially, Stefan, don't you think that 
all that they want is consistency. I, I mean, if you look at the call where Japan got called for a handball against the Netherlands, knocking them out of the, the tournament, it didn't look that different from the O'Hara non-handball call. It at least didn't look different enough that, you know, by their own rules, they shouldn't have gone to, to the monitors for it. It just doesn't make any sense. No, it made no sense. We were we had no idea in the stands what was going on. Um, they don't show replays on the video boards in the stadiums. So the Tobin Heath goal, I mean, I assumed she must have been two feet offside. And then on the handball, that was closer to where I was sitting, and the French fans went nuts. Um, but again, I had no real sense of it. But at watching it afterward, I was similarly perplexed. I mean, I don't think it was a handball, and I don't think that Crystal Dunn was offside. But those were so close. That is exactly why there is VAR, whether you like it or not. Well, I wonder if at some point the officiating decision makers have decided to maybe ease back on VAR because it's been such a controversy throughout the first you know, couple rounds of the World Cup. I went to this really boring <laughs> press conference they did about VAR where their answers to every question was just sort of, it's been working great, nothing to see here, let's move on. But I think they are aware that it was not really being applied in a way that players knew what to expect because it's been different than all the expectations going into the tournament of how VAR would be used. So I do wonder if maybe they sort of eased off and they want to kind of let those more borderline decisions go. And, you know, if that is the case, then I think that's the right move. They should be more transparent about communicating that. But it's FIFA. That's, you know, asking too much. Yeah, I mean, that's perhaps imputing too much logic to uh, an organization <laughs> that is consistently illogical. But let's talk about what happened on the field. Stefan, what did you think were kind of the keys to the outcome of the game? It was clear that France was attacking Crystal Dunn, um, the defender for the U.S., and it worked sometimes and didn't work at other times. And despite that one goal that the U.S. allowed on the header to Wendy Renard, I thought the U.S. defense actually came through in the first game where they really had to come through, and the defense was really organized and solid. And the complaint about the U.S. women's national team for several years now leading into this World Cup has been that they haven't been able to produce a left back. Crystal Dunn is normally an attacking midfielder on her club team and in the past when she has been on the national team. And there have been questions about Jill Ellis's decision to move Julie Ertz, probably their best defender, out of the back line and into a defensive midfielder position. So, yeah, this was a stellar performance. My French buddy sitting next to me kept talking about how good Crystal Dunn was because she was shutting down one of France's best players, Diani. And it was clear from the stands that, A, France was intent on trying to take advantage of Crystal Dunn. B, the U.S. defense was playing impeccably well, including Alyssa Nair, whose goalkeeping was, had been, has been pretty shaky. And C, that the U.S. made a tactical decision to play defensively. They seeded the middle third of the field after scoring that first goal. They allowed France to control possession. France could not finish. So the coaches made, and, and it's come out since then, and, and Caitlin can talk about what the team has said about it, but it was clear that the U.S. made a decision that we can withstand France's attack. We're going to change our strategy here. We're not going to try to exploit our superpower forwards, the strength of our team, 
and we're going to absorb this pressure and hang on and win. Yeah, they eventually switched to a five-back formation. And the idea was they wanted to limit the space on the wings. Because going into this game, the scouting report was that France had these really great wingers, Diani being one of them. And by spreading out, by getting five defenders, they were able to sort of shut down those channels. And I agree. I think that was the best defensive game I've ever seen Crystal Dunn play. Um you know, Crystal Dunn is a left back in large part because of her ability to get forward, to bomb forward and provide a numerical advantage in the attack. So to have her sort of sitting back and playing this role where I thought she did a great job of shutting down Diani, her 1v1 defending looked the best I had ever seen it. For her to have a game like that, I think that really sort of decided the game right there because you're right, they definitely attacked down that side uh, for most of the game. And it was the best defensive performance we've seen from a team that really hasn't been tested that much. I thought Alyssa Nair did come up with some big saves. She did have one moment where she came out and misjudged a ball, and uh, Le Somer sort of uh, shot wide when she had an open opportunity. But other than that, that sort of answered questions that even leading up into this game that we had about the defense. So now if if we feel confident that the U.S. defense can hang on against a team like France, it's sort of how do you bet against them to win the World Cup at this point? The big flaw was their defense, and I thought they showed really well. The story of the World Cup, I guess from a mainstream off-the-field perspective, has been Megan Rapinoe. A video came out that was actually recorded in January of her saying, I'm not going to the fucking White House, um, which led our uh, our president to send some tweets, as he does. But in this game, the story on the field was also Megan Rapinoe. She scored both goals. Caitlin, this tournament has kind of <laughs> exposed, uh, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, the, the concept of a distraction for a team uh, from, from an outspoken player can, can be uh, overplayed. What's your sense yeah. of just Rapino's World Cup and just sort of how she's dealt with it and how the team has dealt with it. Well, I would say it's really important to understand that Megan Rapino is, I think, a really unique athlete and a really unique human being in that, you know, we all talk about this in the press corps. We've never seen or known anyone who is as comfortable in their own skin as Megan Rapino. She is thriving in every situation. There's no question you can ask her that she's going to bristle at or sort of seem put off by. Um, She just, I mean, pressure and distractions and, you know, attention, all these things just sort of bounce right off her. She is supremely confident. And I think it's exactly what we see off the field, her sort of effervescent personality. That's the way she plays on the field. She just tries stuff, and she's not afraid to try stuff. And that's why she's so good. That's why she's so effective. It's that same sort of personality trait where it's just, you know, whatever, I'm just gonna try it. It's okay if it doesn't work. Um, Yeah, and she's really fun to watch. And I thought it was interesting after the US beat France the next morning, I took uh, an Uber ride. And all of my Uber and cab drivers have been following the Women's World Cup, which has been really interesting. And my Uber driver said he didn't feel bad that France lost because the US was the better team. 
And he said his favorite player of the tournament to watch so far has been Megan Rapino. And this is, you know, some random French guy. I don't know if he knew who Megan Rapino was before this, but now he knows her by name and he said he loved watching her. I think she just has that sort of magnetism where people are just, you know, they gravitate toward her and she's just really fun to watch. I think what's interesting about Pino is the way she has grown as an athlete. I mean, it's rare that we see an athlete who is so comfortable and so respectful of the press that she is willing to expose herself. She gives real answers to questions. She knows how to raise issues that she wants to raise. And she knows how to also control the narrative around her. In a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of ethical way. You know, she has not shied away from talking about her brother, a drug addict who has been in prison for most of the last 20 years. There's a terrific profile that Gwendolyn Oxenham wrote for ESPN that was published just the other day to coincide with the World Cup in which Oxenham visits and spends time with Rapino's brother and Rapino talks about their relationship at great length. I mean, this is a woman who is unafraid of the media. She's unafraid of the president. She wants to be uh, uh, an advocate for equality, both personally for um, lesbian and gay rights and for the pay and performance of the team that she is the star of. She has seized her role. I want to be clear that it's not like Rapino would have been a distraction to the team if they had lost to France. I think that we can, you know, go a little bit too far in saying that the goals that she scored and the fact that the team is winning kind of prove something. But those are these are separate points. Totally. Um, and, you know, you mentioned Rapino and, and Gay Wright's her favorite quote uh, of the tournament. Uh, my favorite quote of the tournament was when she was told that it was Pride Day in France. She said, go gays. You can't win a championship without gays on your team. It's never been done before, ever. That's science right there. Like, this is during the tournament. <laughs> um, yeah, she also did a double peace sign when she said, go gays. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of insight that we need from a reporter who is on the ground. <laughs> yeah, I wish someone got video of it. It was a very funny moment. Caitlin, you did a piece for The Guardian on the bonuses that the women have received based on their performance in the tournament so far and comparing it to what uh, the men would have received, the the U.S. men, if they had made it uh, this far in a World Cup. And um, I'm curious for your thoughts on how that was received. And I thought it was kind of similar to Rapino. I mean, it's never a good idea to go into the comments of, of any article <laughs> on the internet, but like for all that we're sitting here and praising, I think appropriately, Megan Rapino, there are a lot of people who, you know, are saying, oh, I would never watch the team or support the team because of her and that she doesn't sing the words yeah. to the national anthem. I, I think there was kind of a similar response to your piece there, you know, wasn't there? Yeah, that piece sort of blew up. Uh, Kamala Harris tweeted it. Taylor Swift treated her. It, it got a lot of attention. And it was definitely split in the way you talk about. In a nutshell, the women so far have earned about $90,000 each. That's from making the World Cup roster. That's for qualifying for the World Cup. But if they were entitled to the same bonuses that the men's team had earned. They would have gotten 200 thousand dollars as a team for every point they get, they got in the group stage. They would have gotten uh, a big bonus just for making it to the knockout stage. So if the women had gotten the bonuses that the men got, they would have gotten around 
you know, $550,000 each or something around there. So the reaction was there were a lot of people who, you know, viewed it in the context of this equal pay fight and the treatment that the women have been getting over the years. Um, and, you know, some of that has happened behind the scenes. Some of it's been very public. Um, I talk a lot about that in my book. I mean, it's really been going on since the 80s and 90s and hasn't stopped since then, the fight for equality. So those people sort of looked at it and said, this is just another example of the women, you know, being treated as second class athletes. And then there's this whole other contingent that notably was all men. I didn't see any women in this contingent who said, well, what about the revenues that the men bring in or men's soccer is just more entertaining? It's more popular. A lot of people wanted to focus on the revenues, which, you know, that's a whole separate issue. It's what I will say is that people sort of assume that the men bring in more revenues. That is not an assumption you can make. It's much more nuanced than that. And, you know, for the last three years, women's national team games have actually been bringing in more revenue than the men's team. So it's a very nuanced discussion, but there are certain people that sort of want to simplify it and just say, well, men always bring in more revenue. So that's why the women's bonuses are smaller. You know, from my standpoint, these are performance bonuses, and I, I was trying to do as close to an apples to apples comparison as possible. Um, so I, you know, there are a lot of other issues. FIFA, uh, the prize money they offer. Um, it's a complicated issue, but the way people reacted, I think. It had nothing to do with necessarily my article, and it's sort of how did they already feel going into, you know, clicking on my tweet and deciding to leave me a comment. Well, this is the oldest story in soccer and in sports. I mean, this is the same sort of people in those comments that are going to immediately say, oh, the U.S. women lost to a U16 boys team. Um, yeah. It This will not change. I mean, you know, you talk about exciting soccer. The U.S. men played Curacao on Sunday and squeaked by <laughs> one nothing, losing possession, the losing having less possession in the second half against this tiny Caribbean nation. Who gives a shit about the Gold Cup right now? Everything <laughs> we care about is the US women trying to win their second straight World Cup. Megan Rapino's great story and the story of these, you know, these these women beating the hardest competition they've ever had in a World Cup to, you know, to try to repeat. So if they win, they're going to get what you reported, something like $261,000 a piece, which you pointed out would be roughly a quarter of what the regular starters for the U.S. men would get if health rose over and they won a World Cup. <laughs> well, number one, I don't appreciate the way you pronounced Curacao, Stefan, with kind of, uh, uh, you know, disdain. Curacao played well. Give Curacao some, some props. <laughs> number two... I wonder if the bonuses for the men's team are so high because of the fact that they're so unlikely to reach them. Do you think there's <laughs> any, uh, you know, any credence to that theory, Caitlin? It's definitely possible, but like, you know, I spoke to U.S. Soccer on background, and you know, they insist that if FIFA tomorrow decided to give the women the same prize money that is offered to the men, then U.S. Soccer would start offering them more money. I mean, one thing I do point out in my piece, though, is that the men do get bonuses that have no correlation to the FIFA prize money. Things like 
getting right. a bonus for every point they earn. You know, FIFA does not dole out prize money on points. They, you know, it depends how yep, far yep. you get in the tournament. So, um, I mean, there could be an element of that. <laughs> um, uh, but I think from U.S. soccer standpoint, the men also need more incentive because the women, you know, they're winners. They That's just sort of in their DNA. That's in their culture. <laughs> The men are not winners, so I guess, you know, maybe you need to dangle a little extra carrot for them. <laughs> that's uh, that's rough, but I like it. Um, all right, <laughs> uh, Stefan, let's preview the England game, U.S.-England semifinals. England has played well, uh, despite the fact that the U.S. is snooping around their hotel. It's an amazing that they've, uh, they, they've managed <laughs> to overcome that. Uh, what, are you, what are you looking for in the semi? Yeah, the uh, Guardian, not Caitlin, but the Guardian, one of their English <laughs> reporters, calls this uh, this hotel visit that the U.S. team made. Not the players, but like their officials. They just went and scouted the hotel where England is currently staying because that's the hotel that the winner of the semifinal game will stay before the final. And the English press has gone to town with this. So the Guardian called it an extraordinary spygate row and reported that the uh, the football association is furious over the incident which occurred on Sunday morning. Of course this is totally normal behavior. FIFA picks the hotels at this stage of the tournament. The US just wanted to go have a look as to where they might be staying. They also apparently looked at the hotel in Nice where they would have to stay if they um lost the game and had to play in the third place game. Um, but this is great, you know, English media trying to create, um, something, something more than, than actually exists. But also England's coach, Phil Neville said it was arrogant. So he is building up. I think this is like English soccer. People know how to feed the English media to derive the maximum jingoistic return. I wonder what Phil Neville thought of the fact that, Every single person in the press corps booked all their hotels, even though we didn't know the results. Like, I think it's just called planning and being organized. But, you know, what do I know? <laughs> uh, back to the game. Um, Stefan, what are you looking for on the field, if not in the hotel? I don't think the United States is going to sit back the way they did against France. Uh, I think they are probably... Um, more concerned about England's forwards being able to finish because they've been doing that extremely well during the tournament. And I think they also believe that their forwards have a much better chance of attacking against the English defense. Um, I think the key matchup to look for is going to be the same one as against France. It's on the right side of the field. Uh, England's defender Lucy Bronze, who scored the best goal of the tournament, a blast from about 28 yards out in the uh, quarterfinal game against Norway. And in front of her, Nikita Paris, um, a forward who both of them are going to be playing for the best team in Europe, Lyon, uh, next season. They're going to go after Crystal Dunn again, I think. But I think the U.S. is not going to, uh, not this time, going to uh, sort of sit back. They're going to try to strike early, is my guess, and go for it. I mean, they've struck early in every game so far in the tournament. So, yeah, they're going to try to strike early. But I think it's not going to give up if they get an early goal. Yeah, I mean, the U.S., I think 
all of their first goals have happened within the first 12 minutes. And I guess it's sort of a nerdy soccer thing to talk about, but that creates a game state where the other team has to play very different than they probably planned on. And I think what we have seen is that the U.S. does take a very ultra-aggressive posture in the beginning. They want to get that first goal. I think they recognize how much that does change the game. Um, I think it will, it'll be interesting to see what they do defensively. I think I agree that they're not going to sit back. Um, but we have seen rotation. Jill Ellis has been willing to do some things that she really hasn't done in the run-up very much. You know, things like putting Carly Lloyd in the midfield. Carly Lloyd hasn't played in the midfield in like two years at this point. Uh, going to a five-back system that they went to against France, they hadn't really been doing that. So, you know... I'm interested to see what else Jill Ellis maybe sort of has up her sleeve that we haven't seen yet. And the other semifinal is Netherlands and Sweden. There was talk that France and the U.S. was the real final, quote unquote. I think given how the Netherlands and Sweden have performed so far in this tournament, including Sweden not being very competitive against the U.S. in the group stage. England versus the U.S. is the other other real final. Um, uh, do you guys have dissenting views on that? No. Um, I was at the Netherlands-Italy quarterfinal, and it was like 95 degrees. It must have been 100-plus on the field. So you really couldn't make a lot of strong conclusions about how good or not good the Netherlands are. But they're not as good as the United States, and I don't think they're as good as England, even though the Netherlands are the defending European champions. Um I mean, again, yeah, this is final number two. So there'll be three finals. Three finals is good. It's better than one final. Well, Tobin Heath uh, said that she finds European football boring, and she was disappointed that all the other teams in the competition were European. Um, So, yeah, I think if there's any real quote-unquote final, it's one that has the U.S. in it (laughs) because they've been the most compelling team to watch so far. Caitlin Murray writes about soccer for many different outlets. During the World Cup, you can find her work in The Guardian. She is also the author of the book, The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer. Thank you, Caitlin. Yeah, thanks for having me. Stefan Fatsis. You know Stefan. He's on Hang Up and Listen, the podcast. Uh, Stefan, we'll talk to you again next week. You will, Josh. Thanks a lot. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
All right. Before we get to our next segment, I want to say that uh, I have a guest for the rest of the show. He is Ben Mathis Lilly. Ben is a Slate staff writer and a fan of the Michigan Wolverines, the New York Knicks, and American Democracy, which helps explain why he's been so unhappy for his entire life. (laughs) Uh, I hope you believe in reincarnation, Ben. Uh, Yeah, the next time, you know, Yankees fan, next life, just, just, just the Yankees. Also with us for our next segment is our friend Vincent Cunningham. He is the theater critic for The New Yorker. He has the passcode to Stephen A. Smith's uh, secure bunker. Welcome, Vincent. (laughs) Thank you. Great to be here, man. So a lot of stuff happened in the NBA, I'm told. Uh, Let's start with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving going to the Brooklyn Nets, who in three years have gone from being the worst franchise in the NBA with no assets and no hope to being the premier free agency destination in the league. Everyone knew that Kyrie hated Boston and was probably going to Brooklyn. But I will admit, uh, Vincent, that the Durant move kind of caught me by surprise, even though it probably should not have. Yeah, I mean, I guess the last two weeks have sort of primed us for this possibility that the Brooklyn thing has become a louder and louder drumbeat, such that by the time it was announced, I wasn't totally shocked. But the greater shock, and for me as a Knicks fan, sort of the, the sort of grim aspect of this, um, is that over this whole year, everybody's said, not even entertain the possibility that he might not go to the New York Knicks. Um, it was sort of every time I heard it talked about, it was like sort of a, a wink in the voices of these people, either on TV or on podcasts. It was like, no, he's of course he's going to the Knicks, like as if he had like gone around telling people for sure, right? Um, and but I, you know, he's a famously kind of capricious, emotional guy, and in that way is very normal. And so I guess he just said, no thanks. I mean, it doesn't change at all where he can live, right? The same sublet in the, in Washington Heights that he was looking at before <laughs> is equally useful now. The thing that I found interesting vis-a-vis Durant's uh, evolution, Ben, is that when he went to Golden State in 2016, he wrote this Players' Tribune essay that it wasn't that long, but most of the content was kind of an apology slash explanation. Like, I'm sad that I have to leave Oklahoma City. I'm going here to better myself as a player and a person. And now when he goes to Brooklyn, he announces it in an Instagram uh, post. It's an advertisement for his media company. There's no explanation at all. Uh, There's a biggie backing track. And uh, he... uh, Essentially, I I mean, is this like a new stage of the player empowerment era? It's like, not only (laughs) am I going to go wherever I want, I'm not even going to like tell you why I'm doing it. I'm just going to do it because I can. Well, and I'm going to advertise my company, you know, I mean, it's like uh, uh, LeBron obviously has led the way with this, but I don't think that anyone else who has kind of launched their own like management entertainment empire has really lived up to it. So, you, yeah, you'd get kind of like a little bit of a. I don't know if it's like a dramatic irony or something with it, like the stakes of this being so important to so many fans. And then the, like the production values of that video being so low, because like the thing that Kevin Durant is pride prioritizing right now is, you know, is his kind of his business is like business enterprise. But I mean, I understand that the tone of it changed, you know, he never really, of course, had the kind of emotional connection to Golden State that he did to Oklahoma City. So, you know, I can see why he's not doesn't need to be as apologetic or feel that he needs to be as apologetic now, particularly because he won two championships for them. So I don't think there's like a great amount of hard feelings there. The thing that people seem to have settled on as the explanation here, and I think reasonably so, 
is that Durant wants to play with his friends. He was like really palling around with Kyrie at the All-Star break. Then DeAndre Jordan is also going there, um, as Zach Lowe pointed out, kind of cruelly in his ESPN piece. DeAndre Jordan's primary skill at this point in his career is that he is friends with players that are better than he is at basketball. (laughs) What do you make of that idea, Vincent? I mean, it's not new. Like, LeBron wanted to play with D. Wade, but um, LeBron also, like, wanted to win his first championship at this point. It seems like for Durant, um, maybe playing with guys that he likes trumps everything. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. There was an athletic article, and I can't I I wish I... Uh, pulled it up. I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the of the writer, but it was essentially saying that like one of his disappointments in Golden State is that he didn't like become a duo of like friend cool duo with Steph Curry, right? I think that's part of what his notion of team is: is that you have um, good buddies that you're also great on the court with. Um, and in some way, he's been looking for that his whole basketball life, whether it's Westbrook, Curry, and now Kyrie, but. Another thing that's like sort of heartening about that to me, and I and I kind of like it as a demonstration of what the NBA might be in the future, is that when we talk about player empowerment, we talk about player movement, we often think of this as leading inevitably toward like some sort of concentration. Like, oh, of course they're just going to go to the biggest markets, or of course they're just going to go to, you know, there's some sort of weird economistic thinking of like, that's just going to redound to the benefit of one or two teams, but the fact is, when we talk about self-interest, it's different for every person. Like, apparently, Jimmy Butler just wants to be on the beach after he, like, hit us over the head all year about how all he is is a great winner. Like, he just wants to go to Miami. Like, um, LeBron has his reasons. Everybody has their, you know, little personal quirks. And so their notion of what their interests are will be different. And so, you know, it's possible that we'll have an incredibly, you know, even league next year, partially because of the variance of different people's interests, Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, especially in Brooklyn's case, you have like, you know, one of the trends in the media coverage of the league for the last few years has been just just real intense focus on on obviously front office, uh, front offices um, and having a smart front office, you know, in the cult of the general manager. And like that seems to be part of, you know, if we're going by some of the reporting, what what drew Kyrie at least to Brooklyn was was like, oh, well, this this organization has a has a great GM. It has these great piece, young pieces, and so uh, that, like you're saying, I, I think should be a hopeful sign to fans of, of the teams besides you know New York and LA when you know the superstars are kind of making their decisions. It's kind of funny to think about Kyrie being like, "Yep, yeah, like Joe Harris is a good piece. Like I like Ky- <laughs> Harris's contract. You know, like it's funny to think of them." Thinking that way, but apparently that was he likes you know he likes the coach he likes the the culture and so that's you know and and then as Josh pointed out in his piece uh, another huge winner was Utah so when you you know you've got Utah and Brooklyn um, winning in free agency it, it's certainly not um, the nightmare scenario that some people might have predicted. Well, one reason that we might be getting the parody that Vincent mentioned is that Durant is out until 2020, and as we just saw the most recent playoffs Kyrie managed to tank his his team uh you know it, it was largely <laughs> him who was responsible for Boston's flame out in the playoffs and so it's fascinating to me that it's clear that Brooklyn is the big winner of you know the biggest day in the history of NBA free agency and yet there is a scenario in which this could turn out to be like not a great day for the franchise that's like totally in play for them um 
And, you know, until, you know, at this hour as we're recording this, Kawhi Leonard in sort of characteristic fashion has sort of watched everything buzz past him in free agency and decided (laughs) he's just going to like hang out and like, I don't know what, what Kawhi Leonard does, but he hasn't made any move and there hasn't, you know, there've been rumors about him going to the Lakers, but until Kawhi kind of does anything, everything seems in flux. Like he is the the key piece here. Yeah. It's really funny to watch him just stand back. I mean, part of the reason, I guess, I mean, it's still to me a mystery exactly what happened in San Antonio between him and Popovich and the other players on that team who seemed to be increasingly missed by whatever was going on with him. But at least part of it had to do with a certain notion, I think, of freedom. And I think I I like the idea of him just like enjoying being a free agent, you know, that this state, not just like getting to choose where he plays next year, but like the state of being a free agent is something that's pleasurable to him. And he's just sitting somewhere smiling, you know, very quietly. Do either of you guys have a theory on why everything went so quickly this year? Because there was, you know, this culture... Uh, you know, LeBron and, and Durant and other guys, too, of like taking meetings and the fancy presentations and, you know, the Hamptons Five, that whole thing. Sorry, there was like cross-country travel involved in recruiting <laughs> Kevin Durant. And then there are like tampering rules in the NBA. But all of these deals were clearly made and done before the free agency period even started. Is this like the decline of the free agency presentation except for Kawhi? Yeah, no one's watching those PowerPoints. I mean, a lot of PowerPoints just going wasted, probably, right? Um, yeah, no, I was thinking about this a little bit. Uh, it's kind of, I, I don't want to use the phrase jump the shark because it has been really fun. Um, but this is definitely like the apotheosis of NBA free agency, both in terms of the news intensity, like just the density of of like you were, I think you counted last night, what was it? Woj had broken six contracts in five minutes or something, Josh. I think it was three uh, minutes, but yes. Yeah, and and then also the, the the salary cap stuff that's going on is has gone as someone who like has read the you know the into the details of the salary cap a few times like it's it's way over my head like it's at this point it's it's sailed it's sailed far above my pay grade um, and so like I, I don't think it's bad for the league like obviously this kind of interest is great for the league and I think the and it's going to focus interest on the teams next year and so I'm I'm not like I, I don't think this is something they need to really worry about but it's just like. It's just become so huge, like I can't comprehend it. Like I was looking, I was just writing down the names of teams this morning and listing their players because I, I don't know who the favorite in the Western Conference is. I don't know who the favorite in Eastern Conference is. It has just gone. It's like entered like a a state of sublimity or something. It's just too much, too much to handle. <laughs> well, one thing that does seem like a trend to me, and this could sound banal, I think it's actually more more interesting than it might seem on its face. But it's like fascinating to me how kind of across the board, all of the bad teams seem to have gotten worse. Like the Suns, the Knicks, the Wizards, the Wolves, the Hornets. Like these are teams that are known for being poorly run and having kind of long standing issues with the front office and with personnel. And all of them seem to have, you know, made their their rosters worse uh, across the board. And then the best teams, you know, there are some Moves that could backfire, like Milwaukee might regret letting Malcolm Brogdon go. You know, who's to say how it's going to work with the Sixers choosing Tobias Harris and, um, you know, getting Al Horford and letting Jimmy Butler go. But there's clearly like a plan and like there's a pathway for all of those franchises to get better. Right. It seems like the kind of 
while there's parody on one hand, also just like the divide between the very best and the very worst seems to have gotten much wider on Sunday. Yeah. I mean, I think that's partially because, yeah, it, it's just so much to Ben's earlier point. The importance of competence is just showing itself, you know, more and more and more. And it's like you can track those teams to like the soundness of their management almost one for one, right? And as the players get more savvy about the soundness of management, it becomes self-reinforcing. Right, right. And and it's funny because I think like structurally, the players have more of a chance now to acquaint themselves with the competence of the teams because like the contracts are shorter right so it's like yeah kevin durant got those powerpoints two years ago like Mm -hmm. what else does he need to hear from them like he in in a certain way they're all they've all kind of met with these teams in person more recently than it's not like they like have they're off a five or a seven year contract and now they finally get to like look around it's like dude I, i talked to you the other day so um that reputation and whatever impressions that they make in those meetings or whatever i think kind of are still sticking around for the next round. And that might have something to do with the speed as well. It's like, what we don't have to do a world tour. Yeah, so what's happening is not only that the schedule is being compressed with free agency, but it's just kind of been extended so that free agency is kind of happening in these guys' heads all the time. You know, uh, since LeBron, you know, kind of showed everyone what you can do, that you can take your own, you know, that you can control your own destiny uh, and kind of, you know, run your own operation. Um, it's something that the players are thinking about all the time. So Durant and Kyrie were, were you know, it seems like talking about it over free agency, uh, talking about free agency over All Star Weekend. Um, so you know, you don't need that PowerPoint presentation uh, uh, period if it's something that you and your agent and you know and the people around you are thinking about constantly. Which clearly, guys like Kawhi and guys like uh, Durant have been doing. I, I'm interested in, in in another facet of this, which is you know, some organizations have reputations for being smart. Um, but what we're seeing now is, uh, that so much depends on the personal relationships, even with inside, you know, even inside that, like, I think we would all assume that the culture of the Spurs was, is a good culture and that the Celtics have a, a, something pretty good going. But, but what we've seen obviously is that in these particular cases of Kawhi and, and Kyrie, um, something just wasn't right. And so that's, there's, you know, there's still kind of a black box that we can't see inside of those kind of, of the way that these interpersonal relationships affect, affect these players' decisions, which is, you know, it's kind of like last night, all of a sudden, Kenny Atkinson became the most important personality in the NBA, um, you, you know. Yeah, the the Nets coach. I think that's a great point. And I think it's all relative. So, you know, Kimba Walker, who went from Charlotte to Boston, he's going to be the new point guard replacing Kyrie. You know, he's talked about how all the Celtics do is win and they have an amazing culture there. And compared to Charlotte, it's like the greatest situation that he's been in in his professional career by an order of magnitude. And Kyrie Irving, you know, having won a title, um, having gone to Boston, uh, Jackie McMullen reported he didn't like living in Boston. Like Kyrie is allowed to be more picky and particular about his situation. And, you know, for him, maybe at this point in his career, he wants different things than than somebody like Kimba Walker. It gets back to to Vincent's point about the reason that the league works to the extent that it works during the player empowerment era is that you're not getting consolidation on on different teams because the best players don't all want the same things. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, all right, let's talk about what I think is the most interesting move of uh, the day slash night, which is 
the Warriors, um, after losing Durant, signing and trading for D'Angelo Russell, which is interesting just to think of his fit with that guard-oriented team. You have another guy who likes the ball in his hands who, um, you know, loves to to shoot and to score. But also just conceptually, this is going to re- this deal is going to require them due to arcane salary cap rules that I think none of us understand to break up their team even more than it's already been broken up. They've already traded away Andre Iguodala, who's been talked about um, internally and externally as kind of the key guy um, culturally on that team. And so uh, this is the Warriors, Vincent, who have talked about how important their culture is to, to winning, deciding that the way that they're going to preserve their dynasty or try to preserve their dynasty is to get D'Angelo Russell and, you know, get rid of Andre Iguodala. What do you think of that? I think it is a testament, first of all, as we are uh, reminded over and over again, to go back to the Celtics with, you know, what happened between them and um, Isaiah Thomas. It's a reminder, again, of the ruthlessness of NBA teams, first of all. Um, that sort of Andre Iguodala was in some ways their, like, human... Uh, championship trophy, like the sort of totem of all that was like good about this era in Warriors basketball, and all of a sudden he's somebody to to get rid of for space. It, it um, there's a lesson to be learned there, um, but also I think that the Angela Russell thing is strange because okay, like by all accounts he's matured quite a lot, and he's he's you know he's he's you know maybe he's the kind of guy that they want around. You know he he famously. Um, got in trouble with the Lakers after he uh, ratted out his teammate Nick Young, a.k.a. Swaggy P, um, and for cheating on his girlfriend, Iggy Azalea. Um, but, you know, now he seems like to be have, have matured into a, a place of leading a team. It's interesting to see, like, how he'll fit into the Warriors' defense. He ran a lot of um, – Warriors' offense, that is. Um, he ran a lot of pick-and-roll last year, which is not necessarily um, the, the Warriors' first uh, method of attack. Um, but it could just be a year of experimentation for them. Like maybe we know we're not going to win the title. And so let's see if we run out, you know, what, what happens if we trot out the three guards in, uh, in Russell Curry and, um, and clay for like extended periods of time. And let's see if we can be, um, on the next wave of things so that once, you know, once we sign some more people and once we feel back in championship shape, we can, we can have done that with the benefit of some new, I don't know, innovation or something. So I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm really interested in, in what it all means. I'm kind of confused at the moment though. Well, the sh- yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Dennis. Well, the shift here is so stark in that last off season, the Warriors had the luxury of bringing in DeMarcus cousins. They basically, you know, just get this kind of extra all-star just for, you know, not very much money just because everyone wanted to be, in Golden State, they're just stockpiling this this massive trove of, of basketball talent. And now, you know, Ben, they are essentially forced into a position where, due to the fact that Durant signed with Brooklyn, if they wanted to get another star level talent, they were basically forced to take Russell. Like that was the only pathway they had to getting yeah. another great player. Like they're not left to kind of choose between which stars they want on their team. They're kind of going to be made to see if they can make this work. I mean, they can trade Russell, I guess, if it doesn't work, but, but this is just like a different, um, you know, different scenario for golden state. Yeah. I kind of, when I saw that, when I saw that news, um, 
it felt like a counterpunch, you know, like they, it seemed like almost like they just felt like they had to do something to like just put their name back in the mix. And it did. It kind of blew me back because I it was so unexpected. And then, like you guys are saying, I started thinking, like, well, how does this fit? Like, I don't, you know, Russell's not a great defender. Um, Clay's right. going to be injured. So you're going to be having these backcourts that are that are Steph and and Russell, which is two kind of stringy guys who who are not like um, going to you know be, be be guarding like the other team's like best scores. Uh, it, it puts a lot on Steve Kerr's plate. I think we'll get to see really, you know, obviously Steve Kerr is a good coach. Uh, we, you know, we know he's not a bad coach, but we're now going to see like, how can you reconstruct your defense where you're, where you're taking like a huge downgrade from Iguodala, um, to D'Angelo Russell. Can you, can you make your offense work with, uh, you know, with more ball handlers? Um, so it's really, it's certainly been a challenge for him. All right. Last question. Will you guys be sad or exhilarated if Kawhi, uh, actually goes to the Lakers? <laughs> <laughs> The part of me that just loves to see basketball come together will be very excited because just to, to think of LeBron like really stepping into his sort of point forward um, identity and leaning on Kawhi as a scorer and um, AD doing the things that he does on both ends would be really interesting to see uh, from a just sort of basketball aesthetics point of view. Um, but for you know, I'm really interested in this wide open league where it seems like ten teams could potentially win. Um, I would, I, I want him to stay in Toronto and be part of that mix and battle it out with this retooled Sixers team and um, leave the West to percolate as it is. Well, if he stays um, so in Toronto, I, I, like Toronto yeah. would be like literally the only team that's running it back in the entire league. Yeah, yeah, it'd be amazing. Yeah, I mean, my position on the Lakers has always been that. They're going to be on TV all the time, whether I like it or not. So, like, I'd rather that they at least have like a winning team out there. And so, like last year, I did not like, and so I, I would be for it. I would be, I would, I'd be happy to see it at least on that. I would be, but I would certainly like to see Kawhi, you know, like you said, run it back in Toronto or even go to the Clippers. I mean, that would be a great story too if he's if he's there in LA, um, you know, kind of across town. Maximal Lakers trolling possibilities. Vincent Cunningham, thank you as always for joining us. Thank you. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Before we get to our conversation about Major League Baseball's jaunt to London, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Ben and I will be joined by our colleague Jason DeLeon, who is known in the office as a psychotic Brooklyn Nets fan. What does happiness feel like? I'm hoping Jason can tell us. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. On Saturday and Sunday, the New York Yankees beat the Boston Red Sox 17-13 and 12-8 at London Stadium in the first official major league games ever played in Europe. The games were extremely well attended. At least the announced crowds were very high, more than 59,000 each game, 
One of those in the crowd was a neophyte baseball watcher named Nick Miller. Nick wrote about the experience for The Guardian. Welcome to the show, Nick. Hi, how you doing? Doing great. I loved your piece. Uh, In your piece, you mentioned that there were two-foot-long, 24-pound boomstick hot dogs for sale, men dispensing pims from chilled backpacks, a mascot race won by a giant-headed Freddie Mercury, and a hearty rendition of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Number one, that is an odd concatenation of things. Number two, (laughs) what did it feel like in the stadium? It sounds to me like this is an attempt by Americans to put on a show that English people would like. Yeah, possibly. I mean, English people are very cynical historically about things like, about all the sort of extraneous stuff around sport. You'll get people, you know, complaining, why can't they just, you know, why can't we just see the game and don't have any of this nonsense around it? But, you know, the the people uh, who are promoting, you know, trying to promote baseball in the UK really did kind of go all out in this kind of thing. They tried to get, in the lead up to the game, they tried to get various kind of British personalities involved um Raheem Sterling was kind of knocking around uh just basically playing the role of an Instagram influencer by the looks of things trying to trying to get some attention on the game so I mean while they uh, couldn't really do anything about the the length of the game or the first like the first game in the end they uh, were certainly going all out to try and promote it that's interesting a friend of mine went and you mentioned this uh to these games he's from Boston you mentioned this in the uh in the article, it seems like there were a lot of people who are from Boston or New York and went to London on vacation and went to the game. So it may not have served the purpose as a an introduction to the sport to uh, the entire population of of, uh, of Great Britain. Yeah, I mean uh, that, that that was very much a kind of uh, unscientific survey of the people that um, in the stands that I spoke to, and just kind of walking around the stadium and uh, near to where we were sitting. It certainly seemed to me that the the majority of the accents you could hear were uh, were American. Um, other people have said that the that uh, maybe in other parts of the stadium there the were more sort of local people watching, but it, it did strike me that there was um, uh, as far as the people that want to kind of break into this new audience if you like we're concerned the the, the the proportion of tourists coming over to just sort of I don't know, build a vacation around this game or something um were, was higher than they might have liked if they, they are you know they are trying to sell the game to new territories so this has been a thing with american football with the nfl playing games in london for years now i'm curious for your thoughts on whether that experiment and this one are more similar or different. I mean, it's all just very kind of nakedly, transparently designed, as you said, to introduce these games to new audience. It's like good for these leagues. I'm not sure how great it is for for the fans there, but just what are what are the the differences and similarities? Well, it's, it seems that um, all the time uh, in the I don't know it's been going on for quite a while now, maybe ten years since um, NFL games have been taking place over here. The end game is eventually to get a franchise based in London or based somewhere in Europe, which is possible. I suppose it's possible for the NFL simply because of the the vastly uh, fewer number of games there are, but. With I, I can't possibly see how that can be sort of feasible for for baseball, and uh, again because uh, it, NFL is just a, a much uh, it seems like a much easier sport to kind of follow casually from you know three thousand miles away. We have all the games are on TV here on Sunday nights. Whereas uh, you'll get, you know, the occasional baseball game on, uh, you know, a, a cable channel. So 
I'm kind of skeptical about whether they'll have the same kind of success that uh, NFL and and to sort of maybe a slightly lesser extent NBA have had over here as well. But maybe their aim is just to have these kind of marquee events over here, and they're not looking to build it in the same way or have a franchise over here or anything like that. Yeah, that that would be difficult. I mean, my suspicion has always been that there's there's like one. PR agency or marketing agency in London that came up with a like a pitch to the NFL and Major League Baseball and the, you know the NBA has done games abroad also that says that if you do these money games here you'll get to grow your fan number of fans by this this many or whatever and I think those numbers they just made them all up this is my theory this is just my theory <laughs> because I don't it just doesn't even seem like it passes the common sense test that playing one game a year particularly the way that the NFL does it which is to send over essentially two random teams you know yeah I mean they're not even trying to build a relationship with any any particular uh, franchise or even a division or, or you know it, whereas they send this the Jaguars least, over there all the time Ben the Jaguars are going every year. The Jaguars do seem to be over here every year, and I think that's. Well, I've always assumed it was partly because their owner also owns Fulham, who uh, until last season were in the were in the Premier League over here as well. So yeah, it doesn't seem to have a lot of rhyme or reason to all the teams to send over here. Other than that, I think Jacksonville also just has the least leverage to say no of any NFL team <laughs> based on their kind of stature in the league. Um, but I, you know, to to. Um, to go back to the the your, one of the comment the comment about uh, the the Boston and York fans just going there on vacation, I, you know that to me seems like a better idea and a more reasonable proposition um, for the leagues uh, than this kind of idea that at some point there's just going to be an entire London or Europe wing of the NBA or whatever, you know, going to Europe to you know uh, for a week and having time to see one one game one game in this kind of interesting historic novel location that I've heard of as a stadium for uh, you know track and 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 soccer, um, you know football uh, that that seems appealing to me I could see doing that for for one of the teams I follow so that sound is, is like a you know it's not as grandiose but it seems like a maybe more sustainable uh, thing for them to do is to send these rivalry teams over as as they are doing next year with the Cubs and Cardinals and kind of make that a you know kind of an annual novelty event uh, you know kind of like a turn a big bowl game or something as opposed to uh, um, perpetuating this this premise that they're gonna they're really gonna expand globally sorry if I could have just ask a question I'm interested to, to see how much of a backlash is to them sending regular season games over here because my kind of day job is uh, writing about soccer and soccer teams send over send teams to the you know similar kind of emerging markets to the US to China and wh- wherever else to play games because they think it will grow their audience but that the, they're always exhibition games they're never games that count and if they the, the, it has been sort of tentatively suggested a few times that games that do count are sent over to these to to, to um, other places and that it always gets a massive kickback from the fans um you know it's viewed as kind of anathema that they they could possibly send uh, any of these teams over i'm interested to see to hear how that kind of thing is viewed in the u.s with um you know with the red sox losing two home games and you know these other nfl teams losing games um kind of regular season games at home as well yeah i mean with la liga there was a huge backlash to playing regular season games in the U.S., as was planned, the players basically rebelled and refused to do it, and and mm. they they canceled. There are fewer games and um, you know a European soccer season, and I think with baseball, it's perhaps 
a testament to the fact that there are way too many games that that wasn't yeah. really that big of a I didn't even of think of that of it yeah it just is okay sure i mean why not you know yeah, I, play, them, play them on the moon who cares yeah. there, there are 162 <laughs> of them i mean that that was an issue i do recall when they were playing regular season games like the season opener in japan the players at least complained about having to travel that great distance and they would give them like a week off after the games um so that they could adjust back to to the schedule but i don't think that that especially if it's just a couple of games um, in uh, you know in Europe where the travel is not a huge problem. I don't think that would be uh, be a major issue. I would say. I mean, speaking for myself, I would love to go to any of the big uh, you know the big soccer leagues uh, if they played a real if they played a real um, game match in in the United States. I would not go to one of those exhibition games unless I was outside that happened to be outside the stadium and I, and I, they let me in for free, but I would actually pay for, to see a real, to see one that counted. So, um, I, I, I think that would, that would be, that would be great from my perspective, although the players uh, refusing to participate seems to be a pretty, pretty solid obstacle. Yeah. Nick, I wanted to ask you about the first game, the one that you went to, that was 17, 13 Yankees based on your write up seemed like you kind of understood that this was not a typical <laughs> baseball yeah. game. It reminded yeah. me of the the Simpsons uh, where they're promoting soccer in the U.S. and the like yeah. promo is open wide for some soccer. It's like <laughs> this was not normal <laughs> baseball. They're typically not 30 runs scored in a game. Like, do you have the sense that people in the crowd understood that? Do you have the sense that this was what Major League Baseball's powers to be wanted to like distort the game in this way to trick people into thinking there are lots of runs. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. I think the dimensions of the park were, for example, were that they seemed to be very kind of. If you're in the stadium, I think it was like 380 feet. I think is to the center field fence. Yeah, that's short. Yeah. And it, it, when you you're in the stadium, they definitely could have made that slightly bigger. So they definitely kind of brought the fences in to kind of go, oh, you may, may, hey, look at these short fences. Maybe you want to hit a load of home runs. Maybe that's all you know. So I think it was definitely would have been definitely encouraged for them to uh, create this kind of, uh, as you put it, sort of distorted version of the game. The problem is that a lot of the people that I spoke to were also kind of vaguely followed the game so they knew that this wasn't a kind of typical game it's a little bit difficult to tell how whether people over over here thought this was just you know oh this is just what happens they you know every game at least 30 runs so one or more you know one theory that i saw buster Olney, who's a well-known baseball commentator for espn talked about how there was some belief that the aerodynamics of the stadium meant that breaking pitches didn't actually break um, because they had designed the stadium for the Olympics so that there wouldn't be much wind for the track and field events. And so with, you know, there being no wind to, you know, provide resistance to the baseball, that breaking balls were just like sitting up in the zone, like enormous meatballs. Uh, So that was kind of interesting to think about. It had not occurred to me as a potential issue. Yeah, I, I, I saw that as well. I saw um, only tweeting about that as well. Another thing someone mentioned was that, um, and this is all, uh, th- this is actually kind of just some you know, fan theory on, on Twitter, I think it was, that there was something not quite right with the mound, that the pitchers couldn't quite get their 
get their footing right so they were they were sort of slipping when they put their um front tried to put their front foot down and that that meant that their pitches were kind of skewing um you know sort of up and away i think um who knows whether this is um the the the, the sort of the aerodynamic thing uh makes a certain amount of sense i suppose but um it, it, it did sound a little bit like pitchers making excuses for uh for just sort of collectively losing the ability to pitch for an evening maybe you know maybe i'm being too harsh on them maybe it was it was impossible to to throw a curveball or something in that but um it sounded a little bit to me like they were making excuses all right nick before you go i wanted to ask you one soccer question you've been following that Women's World Cup and the upcoming England-US game. Yeah, sure. So we are talking about it earlier in the show. There's been this uh, supposed scandal where the US was like snooping around in the <laughs> England team hotel. And those of us here think it's really stupid and absurd to su- in- insinuate that something fishy was going on. In the interest of equal time, we want to get the English opinion on whether the uh, U.S. women's national soccer team is up to something extremely nefarious in advance of this uh, big World Cup semifinal. Yes, how dare you? This, 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 <laughs> we'd never, good British fair play, we'd never try anything this like this. No, yeah, of, of course it's absurd. And it, it's, it's it, oddly, I, 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 it, it's completely ridiculous. And the, the, it's partly fueled um, by some quotes from the, the England manager that have been kind of, quite carefully selected and sort of taken out of context uh, he said um oh, it's not a problem the, the, you know don't worry about it the, the, n- none of us really care about it and then he said we probably wouldn't do something like that and of course th- that, that's the bit that has kind of been broadcast everywhere and is in in all the headlines but i kind of uh, i found it sort of oddly comforting um because if only because uh this kind of thing happens every time that the England men's team play in a uh, in a World Cup yeah. or a European Championships. There's some kind of concocted scandal or controversy or some kind of nonsense to to you know fill the time between games. And um, if they if um, the media are covering the women's World Cup in the same way that they are covering the the men's World Cup even if it's ridiculous it sort of gives the impression that they uh, the, the english media are and as they, to be fair as they have been for a couple of years now taking the women's game a bit a bit more seriously as, as ludicrous as that sounds but yeah of course of course there's nothing to it. i think that when on the us staying in that hotel later in the in tournament or something or might be staying well, they in might that be hotel, if they, would, if they yeah. win they will be how arrogant yeah, of them to be to be snooping around um, well, I know, I know. Well, thank you for defending the honor of our national team. And we <laughs> we hope you enjoyed the 24-pound uh, hot dogs. Oh, well, yeah. I, 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 even I couldn't, uh, couldn't face one of those, but it was, it was nice to have them there. <laughs> Nick uh, Miller, thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. No problem at all. Now it is time for After Balls. If you would like to understand the NBA salary cap, I would point you to Larry Coon's cbafac.com, which includes a 127-question, 74,000-word treatise on the cap that defines such terms as base year compensation. So have fun with that. My favorite salary cap thing, Ben, is the apron. And I was not disappointed because cbafac.com has 65 different references to the apron, the apron being the $0.6 million above the salary threshold. 
at which teams must pay the luxury tax, uh, obviously. If you're above the apron, you cannot, among other things, receive a player in a sign-and-trade transaction, which is why the Warriors had to get below the apron when they agreed to a sign-and-trade with the Nets for D'Angelo Russell. And to get below the apron, they traded Andre Godala, all because of the apron, Ben. Know the apron, worship the apron, or it could destroy you too. You simply cannot understand the modern NBA without understanding the apron. Ben, what is your apron? My apron uh, this week goes to my own powers of prognostication. Uh, in February, after the Knicks traded superstar Chris Stapps Porzingis to the Dallas Mavericks for non-superstar Dennis Smith Jr., uh, a number of well-informed NBA writers argued that, contrary to what the casual fan might think, it was actually a good trade or could be one. Uh, Sports Illustrated's Andrew Sharp wrote that, quote, the Porzingis trade is smart even if Knicks fans are losing their minds. Uh, ESPN numbers man Kevin Pelton said the Knicks had, quote, won the trade. Both argued that the salary cap space that the team had created and the draft picks that they'd received in the deal were ultimately more valuable than Porzingis, who was and still is recovering from an ACL tear. Uh, Some writers, like ESPN's Zach Lowe, were more equivocal, but still argued that it was too soon either way to call the trade a success or failure because we didn't yet know what the team, what the Knicks would do with the assets it had received for Kristaps. At the time, though, I wrote that the trade was obviously a disaster I specifically called it a hateful crap transaction made of sadness and failure, (laughs) arguing that all the national writers were making a mistake to treat Nick's cap space like any other team's cap space, i.e. available money that any given basketball player would be happy to take in exchange for playing basketball. The reality, though, is when the Knicks pay you money, it means you have to play basketball for their team, which I argued was something that no basketball player with any other option at all was going to do. I wrote that the team would never win, quote, an open market competition for talent against teams that have a history of being run competently. This was proven correct when NBA free agency opened on Sunday, as we've discussed, and all the available stars that the Knicks had been linked to signed with other teams, leading them to pursue the typically and spectacularly inexplicable path of signing Julius Randle, Bobby Portis, and Todd Gibson, three journeyman players with moderate to severe flaws who all play the same position, (laughs) power forward. So, you know, I called it. As someone who has subjected himself to 15 years of brutal Knicks fandom since moving to New York, I knew that you can never underestimate what James Dolan is capable of, and that by far the most valuable asset the Knicks can have at any time is a good player like Porzingis at the time, who is already legally obligated under the collective bargaining agreement and uh, the general rules governing contracts to play for the Knicks. Uh, My reflexive pessimism in this case allowed me to predict the future correctly. All in all, though, it still means I'm only at 500 in terms of major predictions that I published on Slate.com, the previous one having been issued 10 years ago in February 2009 when I wrote that Conan O'Brien would, and I quote, have no problem replacing Jay Leno and maintaining NBC's record of late night dominance on The Tonight Show. So you win some, you lose some, (laughs) unless you're the Knicks, in which case you lose all of them. Josh, what's your apron? Three weeks ago now, Brian Curtis published a piece in The Ringer about Brandon Hurley, a sports writer for the Carroll Times-Herald, the newspaper of record in the 10,000-person town of Carroll, Iowa. Hurley was covering the NBA Finals for the Carroll Times-Herald because Nick Nurse, the head coach of the Toronto Raptors, is from Carroll, Iowa. This was, as Brian Curtis wrote, the biggest moment in Carroll sports history since the Lakers team plane got lost in a snowstorm and landed in a local cornfield in 1960. Brian's piece about Nick Nurse and Brandon Hurley was characteristically great and everyone should read it. But now I would like to tell you about that other great moment in Carroll sports history, one that was amply documented 
in the Carroll Times Herald. On January 18, 1960, there's a huge headline splashed across the front page, 23 safe as passenger plane lands in Carroll Cornfield in Snowstorm. There's also a huge photo with the caption, Miracle Landing. The photo text goes on to say, a miracle landing in over one foot of snow and a field of standing unpicked corn was made here early Monday morning by Vernon Ullman, pilot of a twin-engined transport bearing the Minneapolis Lakers professional basketball team on a trip from St. Louis to Minneapolis. The pilot set the plane down in the cornfield on the Mrs. Emma Steffes farm north of Carroll. The plane rolled to a stop at a point four-tenths of a mile north of 18th Street and a couple hundred yards east of of Grant Road. The landing was made at 1.40 a.m. in a blinding snowstorm after the plane had circled over Carroll for nearly three-quarters of an hour. Mr. Ullman said all electrical equipment on the plane failed about five minutes after takeoff. It was impossible to return to the St. Louis airport or to find another airport without radio contact. The next day's paper featured a quote from Lakers guard Hot Rod Hundley, who said starkly, I thought we were dead. Another article noted that the Lakers star player, Elgin Baylor, went to the rear of the plane shortly before the landing and laid on the floor. He told his fellow passengers, if I have to go, I might as well go comfortably. So it makes him a Hall of Famer, Ben. Just that that quick thinking. (laughs) The day after that, another photo with caption, Preparations for removal of DC-3 transport from a cornfield on the Mrs. Emma Steffes farm northeast of Carroll included corn picking operations here Tuesday, shown on picker as he passed in front of airplane as Hilbert Steffes, Carroll, who farms the land. Mr. Steffes encountered rough going as he pushed his mounted two-row picker through foot-high snow depths. The corn picking operation enabled the crew from Gopher Aviation Company, Rochester, Minnesota, to move equipment to the plane and to taxi the plane to an adjacent field where a runway was being prepared for takeoff. The twin-engine ship made an emergency landing in the standing corn. None of the 23 persons aboard, including the Lakers professional basketball team, were injured and the plane was not damaged. A couple of months later, still the biggest story in Carroll, Iowa, another big front pager, pilot of DC-3 returns to scene of triumph. This story goes on for multiple pages and is basically just a transcript of the pilot telling the whole story of how the whole thing happened. It ends with, the people of Carroll were terrific. Within five minutes, two or three men came dashing up to the plane, offering their help. Within another five minutes, a whole fleet of cars were out on the road to take us into town. In half an hour, we had hot coffee and warm rooms. The worst ordeal in our lives was over. The rest of the story you've read about, but I want to pay tribute to Hilbert Steffes for his straight cornrows and smooth job of cultivating. And I can suggest a project for flying farmers, develop a strain of corn with illuminated corn stalks. And then a few months after that, an item inside the paper, Cy Farmer calls our attention to Sport Magazine for June 1960, in which is printed a story, What Happens If a Ball Club's Plane Goes Down? It's the story of the Minneapolis Lakers and their lucky landing in the cornfield northeast of Carroll. There's a picture and everything. What a great thing to happen to your small town. A plane lands, nobody dies. You get some months of content, Ben. There Those are great, great blogs. Those are great blogs. There are some great names on that Lakers team. In addition to Hot Rod Hunley, we have uh, Boo Ellis and Slick Leonard. Um, It was a team with some flair, apparently. None of them died. Mm Mm-mm. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. 
you're still here, you might want even more of the Hang Up and Listen Sports podcast. In our bonus segment this week, Slate producer Jason DeLeon will tell us how it feels to be a Brooklyn Nets fan on this, the greatest day ever to be a Brooklyn Nets fan. When I heard the news yesterday, I actually opened up my window and started screaming at people on the street. And and nobody really understood what was happening. But I needed that. I needed that moment. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. For Stefan Fatsis and Ben Mathis-Lilly, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.